1: Hey there team, Oliver here. Excited to share this interview with Jameson Dightweiler, CEO of Fantasmo. Fantasmo is a name I heard about soon after I started looking at scooters and with their recent announcement that partnered with Tier, I was excited to have a chance to finally bring them onto the show. They have been plugging away on how to use camera-based positioning to better locate vehicles like scooters and e-bikes in cities where often GPS is an insufficient technology to provide highly accurate location data. We talk about the pivots that the company has made and why their ultimate goal is to build and own the base maps that are used for positioning in cities all over the world using micromobility as simply the first step. I've long been excited about companies that are building software layers to the micromobility experience, and I think that where Phantasmo is headed is very exciting. It also provides a really good answer to regulators and city officials who ask how hard it is to enforce parking solutions for shared operators across cities, which as we know is an early issue with shared schemes. It excites me to see the market respond to problems like this as it's all a bit visual we would also recommend that you check out the short three minute video that i've linked to in the show notes talking about how tier is deploying the technology in europe think of that as the intro material that kind of shows off the technology and this is the grunty discussion afterwards (laughs) i also know that if you're listening to this podcast you'll probably enjoy the podcast from harry campbell the rideshare guy Harry started out as an Uber driver about six years ago and started producing material for other drivers, but has since then built out a really comprehensive set of content on everything in the mobility space, including a podcast with guests from many of the top micro-mobility companies, as well as the folks at Uber and Lyft talking about their plans for mobility as a service, transit, and micro. I see his work as tangential to micro-mobility industries and really enjoy it. I encourage you to go check it all out at The Rideshare Guy. And with that, here's Jameson. Let's go. And welcome back to Micromobility. We have with us today Jameson Detweiler. How are you going today Jameson? Doing well, how are you? I'm very well. Where are you joining from in the world today? Currently a little town of the UK
0: called Leon C. That sounds like a French name. (laughs) No, it's l-e-i-h-dash-on-dash-c. So, (laughs) a little bit. Oh, yeah. Oh, interesting. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: Cool. Cool. Nice. (laughs) Excellent. Well, look, I've been uh, fascinated by the Phantasmo story since I first came across your earliest, earliest, I think the earliest video I ever saw was um, some sort of promise about some interesting tech on some scooters. Just this idea of being able to apply computation into a device, I think is a recurring theme that we've had on the podcast. And I'm just, I'm really excited to have a chance to unpack that a little bit with you, but take me through the kind of the origin stories for you. Like where did you come from? What were you doing? And then how did you get into like choose to work on micromobility and get going with Phantasma?
0: Sure. Yeah. So see, so yeah, I'm an entrepreneur. This is a second venture backed company that I helped to start kind of, I think the theme of my interest ever back since college where I was doing a lot of research and around the interaction of basically our built environments or physical spaces and technology. And so that's been a real theme for me in my career, really wanting to figure out how we make technology serve us and ultimately be kind of more organic is the way that I think about it. That led me ultimately to Phantasmo, which actually started out as building uh, augmented reality games. So essentially a much more sophisticated AR type of game than Pokemon Go, where it's actually multiplayer. There's content that's persistent and aware of the world. And started this back in actually end of 2014 with my business partner, who I also went to school with, Ryan Measel set out to build this well before Pokemon Go was even announced. And in the process of that, really validated that there needed to be a technology solution really around next generation maps and positioning technology, 3D positioning technology. In that process of doing it, we knew this already, but saw that really what you're building here is maps for machines, and that this was deeply needed to enable all these types of future applications that we'd envision, whether it's autonomous robots, or vehicles, or augmented reality. And so as soon as micromobility came out of the scene here and Bird put scooters on the ground over in Santa Monica and Venice, where actually we are based normally, I saw that and just kind of recognized immediately that GPS was gonna be a problem on there. Basically the error size of GPS is much larger than the vehicle. These are unattended vehicles that have to live on public sidewalks and other places. And that not knowing where these things are accurately at all times was going to be a problem. And so that's when we said, let's focus on this in particular as a vertical among augmented Reality and other applications, but have seen the, the biggest demand and interest there. Awesome. The first generation stuff that I had seen from you was all
1: on Scooter. Kind of talk me through that journey of, of going and putting things onto Scooters. Were you doing it with a company or doing it on your own and thinking about how do you think of that part as well?
0: On our own, so the core of our technology is really about getting a very accurate position. So from a single image, we can get the position of a device down about 20 centimeters. And we can support this using a cloud-based API, or we've also done work to run it on the edge on devices. And so that's what you saw early on with the scooter. We actually do have a developer kit for this coming out later this year, Mm -hmm. and basically getting companies lined up to do testing of that in the field, starting in late Q2 and then into early Q3. But we also saw, as we went into the market, that while this was interesting on the longer-term roadmaps for the companies, that parking was a major issue today, and that we could apply our technology in the rider experience in the camera at the end of the ride. So it would require no changes to fleets. It works with the existing fleets. You don't have any increase in bomb. You don't have to go upgrade old units. Simply by dropping in some pretty simple code, you could actually change the user flow just a slight amount and make sure that people were parking in the places that they needed to be parking
1: yeah totally before we get to the parking tracks, i think this is a very interesting that there's a lot that we can cover there on device you're using the camera to be able to provide the positioning and the ideal as far as i understood is that you could do things like we know you're on a sidewalk versus you're on a road therefore we can speed limit you in particular areas with a lot more kind of granularity than for example a gps unit especially when you're being pinging off a bunch of big you know, you're in the middle of a downtown or something like that, and you don't have very good quality location data. And for a lot of cities, they've had to apply pretty blanket bans, either blanket bans or speed terms, because they're sort of like, you know, they recognize that you can't really put that on the scooter at the moment, right? There hasn't been that kind of optionality or the function to be able to do that. Whereas I can see a lot of the OEMs that are coming out now, like, Segways just announced the t60 scooter which is going to have obviously cameras built on board i can see that all of the kind of the new scooters are going to be coming out are going to be coming out with the camera do you think that that's going to become over time the default technology of how we differentiate and say like you know that the vehicle is on the road or on the sidewalk or about to hit a person or whatever
0: yeah i think generally that the camera as another sensor is going to be a very key piece the cost of it is coming down significantly and when you look at the cost of edge compute as well that's also coming down very fast so i do imagine that essentially everything that's moving around in the world is going to have one or more cameras on it at some point in time and i think it's going to be the not so distant future because it is really the foundation to building not just sort of awareness right being able to see people in cars but actually to enable robust positioning and very accurate positioning without installing infrastructure, right? Without needing to putting RTK towers into cities and things like that. There are like hypothetical solutions for GPS that you can use to improve it, but they all require significant infrastructure investments in order to really enable them. Cameras don't. You know, we walk through cities with hardware that we've built uh, with LiDAR and cameras on them and basically can map entire cities in just a couple weeks and have the map that we need to enable the positioning and to get very granular data around, here's the sidewalk, here's the curb, this is the bike lane, et cetera. And then the cool thing when you can do that is if you can do the positioning on the edge and it's very fast and it's very accurate and you have an underlying base map, then you can enable very granular, very fast reactions to geofences, such as you're on a sidewalk, slow the device down, you've entered into a section of the city where there's an event going on, slow this down, et cetera. I think it's all going to happen. It's inevitable. And as cost comes down on the hardware here, your cost of operations as an operator decreases enough to justify the relatively sort of small increase in bomb
1: yep excellent yeah cool well we'll come back to that because I think there's a really interesting discussion around you know where, where things will sit and, and, and that and also whether or not this will ever get onto cars because I feel like that is uh, that's what I'd like to see but you know I don't know if it's going to be a thing so where you got to now so you've obviously started and you looked at doing it on scooter but you've pivoted because as you say the parking is the kind of the very material problem that's at the door that all of the operators are struggling with in a lot of cities where you've got all the sort of detritus of large piles of scooters and things like that. You know, how did you identify the problem and then how have you thought through it in terms of what the solution there would be?
0: Absolutely. So we basically saw that the operators were very interested in the technology we have in generally because position GPS is a, you know, GPS error is a big problem for them generally. As we spent more and more time with them, and we saw the shifts in the market, we realized that parking was one of the biggest issues and most pressing ones. And over the last couple years in particular, as you've seen cities like Paris shift to required parking in parking corrals, we saw that that was going to be really the driver and the biggest pain point today. Sidewalk riding is interesting, but I think, and uh, something that does matter in preventing that, but it's compared to basically keeping our sidewalks nice and orderly, uh, it's a smaller pain point. We realized that we could basically just implement our technology just directly on the rider's device to enable that specific use case, because all you need is a photo at the end of the ride to get the position. And I actually think it was Rolf on our team who leads our R&D in Munich, who came up with the idea to basically just have the rider scan the QR code at the end of the ride, which allows us to essentially kind of connect the phone and know the distance between the phone and the scooter. And then we can get the position from the phone. And from that, we can basically say, here's your phone and here's the scooter based on that experience. And so when we figured that out, we realized that there was a very straightforward product to bring to the market. We've seen a lot of excitement and interest. Tier is rolling out with us in uh, all of their 85 plus markets as well.
1: Yeah, so this is, I feel like an incredible coup, by the way, congratulations on getting Tier on board. And actually that was the, you know, like we did a video of yours in Micromobility World in January. To me, it felt like one of those ones where when we showed that video, I was like, this is one of those, like, you get the glimpse of the future sort of feels to it. Because once regulators work out that this is an availability, this is available, like, I feel like it's just going to become standard technology in every in every market.
0: Certainly the hope for us. Yeah, I mean, right now, we're actually yeah. in Miami. a <laughs> lot <laughs> on our team is over in Miami mapping, and we've opened up a free pilot there to the operators in the Miami area to test it because Miami is also putting down parking crowds Today, they are Not required, but certainly it looks like cities are moving in that direction very quickly. The other piece of Mm. it, too, is that when you see other markets that are requiring lock to, they've done it, I think, in large part because it's not been possible to do what we're doing before, right? The objective is Mm. not to prevent these scooters from being stolen, right? It's not why the cities are forcing them to lock the scooters. It's to make sure that they're not blocking sidewalks so people can, can actually walk. And so our hope is that you can see adoption of this and also get that lock tube model to disappear as well, because your ridership yeah. is lower, right? So you, if you have lower ridership, it's not as good a market for the operators. And of course, you're not really getting the benefits for the city's residents as well.
1: Totally. Like, it makes sense, obviously, that we build our Corral-style system. One, one hopes that we get to a position where it's like every 100 meters, you kind of know that you can go and maybe it's every 100, maybe every 200, but you know that you're never that far away from walking to a place where you're likely to see aggregations of all of these different scooters. And being able to do that, like knowing that you can, the quality of the parking, because you may, you will have seen that oftentimes when you park a scooter, pretty much every service I've ever used says, take a picture of the scooter at the end of the ride. Do you know whatever happens to that? Because I have never, <laughs> ever, ever been like, one, I've never been fined and I've parked scooters in really weird places, but also just, you know, like it feels to me that, you know, everyone's like, oh, we'll, we'll apply machine learning to be able to work out where the scooter is and then it's parked correctly and all that sort of stuff. Is that actually true? Because I, I don't know of any enforcement that ever goes on in that space.
0: I'm not aware of any enforcement that's happened from that. I think for many operators, it was saying they thought that they might apply something and there's this you know hypothetical and that this term that gets thrown around too often of machine learning that says, oh, we can you know take that image and then determine where it is and see if a rider's behaving. But no, to date, it hasn't. It also doesn't really fit the current model, right? That's of like these in cities where you're required to park at the end of the ride because previously when it didn't matter and you, know, you weren't going to get a fine for it, then you didn't want to add the strain of the user. In cities where parking is required, it does make sense to make sure that the parking is validated before the rider checks out, because if it's not and they accidentally don't park in the right place, then they can get a ticket, right? So what you're actually you're yeah. ultimately helping the rider in that settings. Yeah, but in terms of those end-of-ride photos, I think most of them just kind of go into an AWS bucket somewhere and uh, just sit there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> I, I don't think I would love to have a conversation with anybody who's in the industry who can tell me where those don't go in the meantime do you need the latest iphone to be able to run these things or like what's the compute that's needed on the device and the quality of the camera that's needed
0: on it on the phone yeah so it really any device i mean it doesn't matter so we just take it like static images from that and when we save them we apply masking to them so we take out faces and license plates so there's no personally identifiable information that gets consumed anywhere and really it doesn't matter because you know the images that come off the phone get downsampled. they're like 640 by 480 it's not really about the quality of the camera or anything like that so any device that can run a basically any of these the scooter apps works fine and there's no really overhead on the phone itself you know because the complex computation is done in the cloud and when you say 640 by 480 that that's a tiny image so like the data requirements are really low as well i take it exactly yeah so yeah it's very small yeah so it's there's no like you know It's interesting, actually, because I think oftentimes those end-of-ride camera flows haven't been optimized. So you'll see, Mm. and if you're using like iOS and it's using, it's actually like doing a camera save or an image save using like the image API, you actually can get the phones to hang in those scenarios sometimes. And that whole process can be pretty bumpy and also take some time. So our experience actually, because it's not going through like a save a photo and upload, actually, I think often is much smoother than the snap a photo, save it, upload it. Totally. I hear what you're saying.
1: In terms of integrating, that is easy enough. Like it's a couple of lines of code, right? That someone can implement into their app. I mean, it's in theory, just an API call to you guys.
0: Yeah. We just have like basically like reference SDKs for Android and iOS. You can drop that in there and it interfaces with the API itself. Yeah. So it's pretty straightforward to do that. And, you know, you can turn it on in markets where it's available and not, and it's very straightforward for operators to roll that out. And then in terms of,
1: you know, in theory, this could work for not only like scooters, but it could work for mopeds. It could work for other sort of shared micro mobility and all that sort of space for you. So mapping a city, you, you mentioned that it takes about three weeks for you to kind of come in and, and map a city. Talk me through that technology, like, and you know, is that an expensive process for you? How do you think about that?
0: It's not really expensive. That's one of the key things we've been focused on over time is we know we've got to be very fast, efficient and expensive at actually mapping locations, right? and so we've developed hardware that looks a lot like google and apple would have with like these backpacks that you use to walk around and we call it the phantasmo explorer so it's got two lidar on it the just the basic Velodyne vlp 16 pucks as people call them that you'll see on a lot of autonomous vehicles or any of the sidewalk robots running around and then a custom six camera array Uh, and this is all kind of time synchronized and we just walk around we have an ipad app that people look at it tells them where to walk captures that information and then we basically just you know go around the city in a bunch of different loops and that builds up enough coverage and we combine that into a global map there.
1: Yeah, wow. And then from there, if an operator integrates it, what's the sort of cost? How do you think about your business model? So do you charge a like a per thing or a, a setup fee? Or a, what, what does that look like?
0: It's really just a, a per parking fee. It starts at five cents per parking fee, but goes down significantly with volume as well. There's no setup fees in any of the really the major markets. And if there's a new market you need us to go into, we typically just look for like a year commitment in that market. So it's pretty straightforward. So even if a market that we don't have, we've set things up so that we can basically go launch in markets very fast and isn't really a constraint for us or for the operators. That's fantastic. I will
1: be linking to this video when we publish this, but I really encourage listeners to go watch the video because it's really quite magic to watch it happen in real time. Do you want to just explain that process? I feel like we, we didn't
0: even cover the basic part uh, when, we, <laughs> when right. we started, but is it, yeah. Yeah. So essentially, when you get off a scooter and you hit the end ride button, it will pull up QR code scanner, just like you'd normally see. And then you scan the QR code again. This is the one kind of change from just snapping a photo. But we scan the QR code so that a person can't just walk away and pretend like they're in a parking space. And so you essentially scan the QR code. When the QR code is scanned, it starts to track the movement of the phone, actually using augmented reality technology. ARKit on iOS and ARCore on Android, uh, which is just Mm built-in APIs. So, once it's tracking, and then once the phone basically turns up and we know it is kind of at the at buildings, typically, is what we want to see, it'll start to just grab images, send that to the API, and once one of those images has localized, you've got the position, it'll send it back. That'll correlate it to the actual underlying map of parking spaces. We can also enable furniture zone enforcement too, so if it's not a labeled parking space, we can say, we know this area of a sidewalk is actually legal to park in based on ADA and other requirements, we need to keep a certain section of the sidewalk clear. And if it's in the space, the user just gets to walk away and they're done with the ride. If it's not, it'll tell them, hey, it looks like you're outside the space, please move it. And it starts to flow over again after they've moved it.
1: The thing that I get really excited about when I hear about tech like this is that with a 20 centimeter level of positioning, I mean, you're at the point where you can start saying, this car park can be repurposed and we know that this is gonna be a scooter park. And we'll get them off the sidewalks because, of course, I mean, it's madness when you think about it that people complain about them being parked all over the sidewalks. It's like, well, cars used to be parked all over the sidewalks as well. I mean, (laughs) back in the day, it was none of it was a sidewalk and none of it was parking because we didn't have any of those systems. We developed that idea of scooter parking, et cetera, over time. And the early, you know, it's just it's cool and interesting to see how that this what appears to be, you know, a relatively small tweak on, on positioning will allow us to be able to say, you know with that level of accuracy we can now start doing enforcement with the enforcement we can actually start building and investing in that infrastructure and on the other side I imagine councils probably get kind of excited about the idea that they can uh, go and issue fines to uh, riders who clearly parked in the wrong place. Horace and I have had discussions about whether or not the future of these mobility devices in general as we've seen uh, you know the computation will sit on device or it'll sit on the phone. I happen to think that riders, generally speaking, will look at their device and say, that's cool, I want it to be like an accessory to my phone, but the primary computing will sit with the phone. And Horace is, he's of the opinion that these things will become computing platforms in their own right. And I'm just kind of curious, yeah, I mean, you're, you're kind of right there. You you are the one building some of these first applications, I guess, of if you think about these scooters as being like a computing platform. How do you
0: see the market developing? Is, it, you know, is there credence in both arguments? I think you're both right, actually, in a sense, and I think this is actually part uh, really about like a shift in computing as well, in terms of how our devices are going to be kind of extended to these sorts of networks. So, for instance, I think it's probably pretty likely that we'll see iterations on vehicles where your display and your compute is used for navigation, right? So, not actually, I don't know that you'll necessarily have a display on a scooter that's going to show you turn-by-turn navigation, but. When you look at some of these additional sensor technologies like the embedded solution that we're working on that has a camera, really it would be very difficult to use a device's camera and you want to have a specialized compute that kind of either, like you could use a GPU, but you also have like visual processing units. Intel Movidius chip is that you see in like DJI drones or the things like this are built specifically for these types of applications where you basically are doing essentially near real time processing of images at the edge. But that's just a specialized chip that'll feed back into, you know, the brain, which could be on the scooter, but it also could be on the device. So I think you'll see a lot of this stuff shared. You know, I do think that, you know, looking at CarPlay, right, is where I I get excited about thinking about our devices, right? I still like to be able to take my experience onto this device, my preferences with the navigation. I really like the haptic feedback on my Apple Watch to tell me when to like make a turn <laughs> from Apple yes. Maps or Google Maps, right? So I think like it's this whole networked piece that's gonna be key and I think, you know, all of these things will be true. I do think it'll probably be my phone that's the display on the device.
1: Yeah, I've thought about that as well. I, I've ridden on a scooter. So Beam in New Zealand, well, the Asia Pacific's largest operator, but they they happen to operate here mm-hmm. where I live, and they have started putting good quality phone holders on their scooters. And you know, you ride around the city, and it makes for a better rider experience. than, for example, yeah. I think. And Having you can charge your, your pocket, phone at the same you kind time. Of won't be able to know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. I can totally see that being the case, especially when you're thinking about these scooters as being places that you might wanna, you know, enabling new behaviors. So for example, the the one thing that I've thought about a lot is this idea of like scooter gangs who get to get, we're not gangs, but you know, Scooter parades where people get together and everybody rents a scooter and they, they go on a, like a joyride together. That, that that is a possibility that gets unlocked. But you need to have your phone kind of out of your pocket and in front of mm. you. And there is a whole level of gamification that you can open up and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And all of that stuff, I think, will come and it will sit as a combination between the phone and the scooter itself. I do think that the scooter itself probably will end up holding a lot of the safety tech stuff because of course that just it makes a lot more sense that, that those things sit with that absolutely yeah so talk me through say for example you've mapped a city you know an oem or an operator came to you and said look we can kind of continually operate like send images up to from the scooter that say for example they get new scooter hardware that has a camera on it and they want to be able to access for example something like what you guys have got what in theory would you be able to enable for them mean um, and we were talking hypothetical i guess probably a year yeah. or two from now when the when the scooters are coming but what are you thinking is going to come down the pipe
0: The way to kind of think about this is that you're going to enable accurate position less than 20 centimeters on the scooter at all times, right? So at all times, you're going to be able to track the scooter moving around with the 20 centimeters of accuracy. And then you're also going to have an underlying map cached locally that is accurate to Mm. a couple centimeters so that you know you can take that position, correlate it in real time because it's at the edge, right? So you can very quickly know, oh, you passed the threshold into a restricted area, or you've moved from the bike lane into the car lane, and then the scooter can know that that's potentially an event where something dangerous could happen, or you've moved onto the sidewalk, etc. cetera. And so really, as we're building this product, our goal is to be very accurate in the position and the underlying map data that we provide to our customers, as well as to be very responsive, right? So you can know when you change, you know, you have a coordinate, but what is that coordinate in, right? There's metadata that's associated with it. The scooter is in a bike lane. The scooter is on a sidewalk. The scooter is in a parking zone. And so that's gotta be fast. And then the other components with this that we're bringing onto it is some real-time perception almost as kind of a secondary feature that's gonna say that there's cars and people in front of you, et cetera. So that kind of real online object and person detection too that can be used Mm. for other safety features, yeah.
1: Fascinating. Yeah, totally. I mean, I can absolutely see it. That makes a lot of sense where you can go. And I take it as well that because you can have a cached local version of the map, you actually don't need to spend a lot of data uploading to the cloud that much.
0: Yeah, the only time you'd ever see kind of like an update over the data connection on that would be if you basically need to update your geofences. The underlying maps that are kind of, we, you know, the, the data cache for positioning doesn't have to be updated very often and just can get updated at like a service event where you just swap that out. So really, it runs entirely at the edge. You only basically yeah push those updates essentially if you want to change traffic rules on the device. And you're talking mm. about hundreds of kilobytes, small things at that point. Yeah.
1: Yeah, because how much of that is required by, So say for example, like I'm thinking about Segway, I'm thinking about Okai, I'm thinking about the like kind of the large manufacturers in this space. Are they trying to build their own custom solutions in this space? Or are they, you know, is there like, do you have ease of access to being able to access, for example, the camera and being able to put stuff on the device?
0: So a lot of this is playing out right now in the conversation that we're having. I mean, a lot of both operators and the OEMs are looking at what better edge compute looks like as well as cameras as sensors. Generally for us, you know, as long as there's a a cell phone like um, kind of board on there or a specific kind of uh, compute for the camera, then it's pretty easy for us to run the technology there. But it's pretty clear to me that the industry is headed in this direction. You know, as people are talking about autonomy for scooters, then I think we'll get there. and, And personally, I think that like scooters are probably the most important step that we have toward like autonomous devices effectively like these are autonomous robots that just can't move themselves around yet although some of them are starting to but yes. they need to have this same level of perception and you're going to enable this right because you need to know where these things are at all times you have an understanding of what's happening with them in order to respond for the rider also for you know the operations side too to find them to service them etc these things need to be like robots ultimately so it's just a matter of time so the company you you started is clearly very different to the company that you've
1: ended up in this has been a very interesting cycle over the last couple of years to watch the big scooter boom of sort of 2018 through into 2019 and then you know obviously the 2020 was COVID. so you know what was the fundraising journey like for you as a software company trying to be in the micromobility
0: industry sure so i mean we've been pretty lean as a team just kind of in this r d phase for a long time you I know mean, went out initially with the augmented reality market and actually do still have some customers there. We have a fun Wallace and Gromit game that's gonna be launching this summer actually in the UK. Uh, with a really? Called... Oh, I love <laughs> yeah.
1: Wallace and Gromit.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's it's called Wallace and Gromit: The Big fix-up. Our customer there, Fictioneers, is an incredible company of like really experienced game designers that are trying to build these sort of next generation experiences. So you'll actually literally go into like downtown Bristol and a couple other cities that are launching, and you'll be able to play this like augmented reality game where the characters are actually integrated with the city, and it's it's super cool because it's stuff that like we thought about basically wanted to do when we started the company and now are, are starting to enable it. And the underlying technology here is the same thing. It's accurate position and the 3D model of the city. It's all the same. But the fundraising, I mean, yeah, it's, as a software company here, I mean, definitely it's been about we're trying to get the traction in, in the space here and just validate that there's a use case for this. And for us, you know, micromobility is one of our use cases. We think it's the the biggest and most important use case today, but ultimately we're, we're building a foundation for a global map, right? Ultimately, we want to build a, a map as a platform and so that's how we've approached it in terms of going out and fundraising and this is really just that first piece to get there and to build a self-updating map of the world and that's the vision and that's what has resonated with investors and i guess in that sense you're you know
1: tied in some ways to the micro mobility industry and the boom and bust there and obviously the excitement when when there is the excitement but you are in some ways agnostic as well because of, yeah, as you say the game here is a map of the
0: world not it's good operation in every city or or something like that yeah, I mean, we can, you know, provide solutions to cities as well with on the data side, you know, another area that I'm very interested in, which is also in another kind of boom and bust cycle is really same day delivery and starting to expand kind of our SDK to enable that where you see a lot of loss in time and a lot of frustration in the process is when your Uber Eats driver gets out of their car, off their bike and they have to find your door. <laughs> Quite mm-hmm. often they struggle with that. They lose time and they have to call you. That's a problem that's pretty trivial mm-hmm. for us to solve, right? You know. Our product is focused on mapping sidewalks, and that's one of the most unmapped areas in the entire world. But for us, when we capture data from sidewalk, we can actually understand, oh, that's the street number and that's the door for that location. Have it all mapped. So you pop off, pull up the camera, and augmented reality will actually point you to the exact location that you need to go to to drop the food off.
1: Mm. and in that sense i guess you're very much a sort of software play once you build that one city you can kind of keep reusing the data and for a whole range of different other use cases in that regard and in that regard i can see the definite like venture return possibilities that the investors would be looking for versus for yep. example a lot of like the interesting thing about micro mobility is that i think the space has pivoted from that a lot of the shared stuff was venture investable to actually this is probably better funded through debt and and or private equity with sort of relatively standard returns. you know standard returns you can kind of Better on a city, you know that you can build a business and as long as your operations are fine, you're okay. Versus something like this, which is, oh yeah, you can totally see a thousand X of, you know, if you get every city in the world and obviously the dream. But look, so the, the kind of final question that I'd have, and this is, I guess, in some ways tied to the investor conversation. How defensible is the moat? Because it strikes me that like you're building the maps, Apple's building the maps, Google's building the maps. If they just opened up their data through some sort of API, would this be a strategic threat to you? How are you thinking about that in the business you're building?
0: For us, the way that we've looked at that is that generally like there's you know kind of a couple of steps to building the moat. You know, today we're really going out there and we're the only offering that can enable this in cities at scale. When you look at the Fang companies, they're focused on maps that are very much tied their own platforms, right? And their own, you know, Mm -hmm. economic drivers and other pieces. And so, you know, Apple's doing this to build a better Apple maps. And you've got Facebook that's doing it because they want to build AR glasses and have people wearing them. Google is really wanting to drive like an ads platform here. So I think for them, they're all trying to build map that's specific to their platforms and their requirements. I don't see the world that way. And Fantasio doesn't see the world that way because really this map becomes the shared computing platform that all these different applications have to plug into and operate on top of. And so whether it's on Android or iOS or some future Facebook platform or any of these things, you have to have interoperability because at some point you move beyond this sort of static place to like real time transmission of it. You move toward a real time 3D to digital twin where the scooter itself is always represented and you can get an adjustable data layer of an entire city block to feed into vehicles and augmented reality and all these pieces. And that, I think, fundamentally has to look a bit more open and more like the traditional Mm. infrastructure of the internet and the way that you structure it and build that really underlying technology. Think about it as kind of like DNS Mm. for the physical world. So how how the market plays out and how this all like works out in the end, I don't know. I know for us, when we are getting to scale, we're getting device in the market, that means that we get more images. The more images we get, the faster we can update maps, the faster we can update maps, the more people want to use our service essentially, right? So we need to get to Mm -hmm. billions of daily active cameras. And that's really where the moat comes in. I personally believe that at the end of the day that the map as a platform due to market dynamics is going to have to be a new company. And that company will be one of the biggest companies built over the next decade. Well, that's Phantasma or another one. This will be an independent company.
1: Yeah. So I'm really curious about that because obviously one thing that I found really fascinating was OpenStreetMap has gone and built the obviously not positioned or digital clone versions of the cities, but like just the actual mapping that is now, you know, it's all open source contributed from like Amazon's got very substantial resources that they put behind that, as has Microsoft, as has others. You know, can it sit with a company or do you think it'll sit in an open source project, something like OpenStreetMap?
0: I think when you look at like the level of innovation and the cost structure around it, that you need to have a business model around it to drive it, right? OpenStreetMaps has done a great job at getting these kind of underlying 2D data layers. When you're getting into 3D and sort of the compute required and sort of the organization of that, it's gonna be very hard for an open source organization to do that today. Um, But I don't think that the model is going to look as like the walled gardens of these other commercial map platforms. So there's something in there in between. And I think that certainly open data is gonna be a component of it, but you are gonna have to move towards standards. And I'll, I'll give you like very simple reason for this is that when you look at this map at some point it has to also include private property has to include buildings and mm-hmm. you know just like you need a permission to enter private property at all times that permission may be open right in a mall where anybody can can come in there's still essentially uh, different laws and expectations of privacy when you enter in there about what you can do in that space right and how you can use that so Mm -hmm. that map of that building is going to be needed to be given on like a permissioned basis and Mm -hmm. that's going to require standardization cross-platform etc that's going to enable that and you're going to have to build up this sort of network model of the map and so i think that's going to really drive open standards and some open data, but it's going to require participation in network from these kind of private actors.
1: One final question for you, which is what does competition in this space look like? The thing that I can see that's coming down the pipe is, you know, well, like there's Google's cord, which came out of sidewalk labs and they were trying to do like the mapping of every city and know where all the sidewalks are. So you can do like curbside management and all that sort of stuff. Like, is that something that you would consider getting into or do you see them as competitors or who are the other groups that you know of that are trying to map cities in the same level of data that you guys are.
0: Sure, so yeah, today I mean like the parking SDK is we provide this very accurate map of the parking spaces and also of furniture zones where you can legally park as well and then the positioning technology. On the positioning side of things with the camera positioning system, the only companies that are doing this really at any sort of scale are, you know, Google and Apple and others that haven't rolled this out and they're very platform specific, not looking Mm -hmm. at sort of offering these services to vehicles and robots today on the like mapping of sidewalks we think about like essentially the maps that were created are focused on applications under 20 miles per hour which includes UMB walking and scooters sidewalk delivery robots bikes etc this is an area that i think a lot of companies have realized has a lot of opportunity Obviously, cities also need this information. They need to have a better understanding of their sidewalks. You know, curb utilization is a huge topic right now and trying to figure out how do we share our sidewalks for all the things we need to do from, you know, trash pickups to parking scooters and sidewalks to even more beautification of it. And this is an area where we definitely are getting into. As we go through and walk through the cities, we take this data, we do label it very accurately. So we know curb cuts, down to centimeters level of accuracy. So unlike some of the other companies in the space, we're not just doing pins collected out there. We're actually creating, you know, centimeters level accurate 2D and 3D representation of these spaces that can be consumed for various applications. So you can use this for city planning. You can use it for the parking applications that we have or kind of anything else as well. But I, I think that that's going to be a gold rush really. And, and others totally. do well, that, too. And, that, and that's yeah. why I was
1: asking about the competition. Like who else is trying to do that? Are there, are there companies that are just sort of independently saying, literally we think it's going to be worth gold so we'll go out and build our own models and don't have or they have other use cases that they're trying to build these for but
0: i mean you have companies like cord that came out of you know sidewalk labs from google that are really working directly with municipalities go out there and kind of do the surveying i don't know if they're doing it independently I'm not today aware of companies that are uh, really focused on kind of mapping the sidewalks in the same way. Google is trying to roll out sidewalk information into the Google Maps consumer experience. That's really just about enabling kind of better walking directions, which is part of the stuff that we want to enable too. But today, like, I think people kind of see it, the actual, like, how you display this information and how you represent it is still kind of an open question, sort of existing map standards and sort of GeoJSON and KML and all these things like, that. they're not actually built for these types of areas you're trying to map, for doing a small sidewalk or and the understanding the geometry of that the curves on that, like if you look at GeoJSON, you can't even draw curves. There's there's a whole lot of constraints there. So it's very much a known area. Obviously cities really want to have a better understanding of what's happening with their sidewalks for everything from like, is there a tree root that's cracking the sidewalk to are people actually blocking the sidewalk here? It's very important for quality of life in the city. So the demand is there. And I think there's a lot of different approaches to it today.
1: Yeah, fascinating to see how this plays out. Excellent. Well, all of this is very fascinating. I really appreciate your time. If they do want to track you down, how, how do they do that,
0: Jameson? Our website is phantasmo.io, F-A-N-T-A-S-M-O, .io. You can also reach me at Jameson, J-A-M-E-S-O-N, at phantasmo.io. Fantastic.
1: Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been a great chat and very interesting. I mean, I just love the, the, you know, this is where compute kind of feels like it hits the road. The sort of the intersection between mobility and compute feels like it's the first, like, very legitimate use cases just kind of working all this stuff out. And I'm really excited to see what you guys build. Absolutely.
0: Thanks, uh, thanks for the chat.